Pop Culture Affidavit episode 100. Deeds, not words. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this is a special milestone of an episode because, well, it's my 100th episode. And as I mentioned at the end of last episode, the topic I'm covering today was not a hard one to think of. Because this topic had been on my mind as one for a special anniversary for at least the past couple of years. Now looking back on other anniversary episodes of this show, I spent episode 50 looking at how one senior year of high school is portrayed in teen movies. And I spent episode 75 looking at Saturday Night Fever, a movie that came out the year I was born. But this? Well... This movie has been part of Pop Culture Affidavit from the very beginning. I won't get into the entire origin of the website of the podcast. In fact, that's something that I'm going to cover as part of the next episode. But I do want to mention that when I created this blog back in February of 2010, the very first blog post that I wrote was called Coming On Like a Megaforce. I had decided that the blog was going to be about random things in popular culture and this 1982 Barry Bostwick action-adventure sci-fi flick that I had a little bit of history with was a great place to start. So I'm coming back to Megaforce. And I'm coming back to Megaforce now because it's been more than nine years since I wrote that blog post. And an image of Megaforce's main character, Ace Hunter, is the main cover for the podcast, the Facebook page, and the Twitter feed. So I thought it was a great chance for me to reevaluate it. When I looked at this nine years ago in that blog post, I was a little snarky. I wasn't completely trashing the movie, but at least I was trying to explain that it holds a special place in my pop culture history. Because it's really one of the first movies that I saw part of that was aimed right at me, but that I knew even at a very young age was terrible. So the question I had to ask myself going in when I decided to reevaluate everything is, well, two questions really. First, was that a fair assessment back in 2010? And is this really that bad of a movie? The original blog post, I'm going to link to it in the show notes for all of you, uh, relates my origin story with the movie. The condensed version of that is that I remember coming across it one random weekend afternoon when ABC7 was playing it. They would sometimes run movies during the day on weekends if they didn't have like sports to show. Something I don't think happens now. I think there's like golf on somewhere, everywhere, 24 hours a day for them to show or something. But anyway, so I'm hanging out. It was in my basement. Uh, My friend Tom Hackett and I were either waiting for the Mets game to come on or we'd gotten bored playing the same three Nintendo games or whatever. And we were flipping around and we caught what I think is about the last 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. And then once it was over, I think we shut it off. But before we went outside, before we did ever whatever we were going to do, I remember both of us kind of looking at it and going, that was one of the dumbest things we'd ever seen. 
Now, flash forward to years later, I'm at my second job after graduating college. Uh, this was a dot-com startup that I was working at in 2000, and I got laid off from in 2001. And during one of the many, many, many hours I had where I did really next to nothing as a marketing assistant at this company, and it's really no surprise I got laid off about six months after I started, I began reading websites all about pop culture, comics, movies, TV, whatever. I was in news groups for different TV shows and comic books. Just you name it, I was trying to get involved. And this was about 2000, 2001. And I came across a site called Bad Movie Night. And I came across another pop culture blog called X Entertainment. I think that many people who are listening to this are actually familiar with X Entertainment or XE. Uh, it was... It's not around anymore, or I think it's around in terms of an archive format, but the guy, Matt, the guy who ran it, uh, now runs a similar site called Dinosaur Dracula. So if you're interested in, or you remember that fondly, go there to, to Dinosaur Dracula, and you see a lot of the same stuff that he used to do there. So so an XE and then Bad Movie Night. Bad Movie Night's still up, but I don't think anybody's put on anything on that site in at least a decade. Anyway, both of these took a look at Megaforce at one point or another, and I immediately remembered this. Once I saw the stills and once I saw the description as that random bad movie, the one I saw with Tom Hackett when we were kids. So right away, I knew I had to watch it. Now, I still had a membership to Hollywood Video. I still had a Blockbuster card. There was another video place that was open. None of the places had this movie. It was not easy to find. It never showed up on cable anymore or anything like that. eBay was around back then, but... I really wasn't very active on it yet, and I might, I didn't really think uh, of, of going to find it there anyway. And now, actually, if you look for a VHS copy in the old CBS video, Fox video, that box that it came in, uh, that'll run you between $20 and $50. I've seen some listed at like $100 or plus $100. I guess it depends on condition and everything. But what I decided to do is instead of, you know, paying uh, upwards of that money for this really kind of crappy movie or what I thought was a crappy movie at the time what I decided to do was take a chance and I emailed the guy who ran bad movie night to see if there was a way he could get me a copy of the film you know like maybe dub it to me or something like that and he told me that he he told me that nobody should actually have to pay money for megaforce but if I wanted to send him a blank tape and five bucks to cover shipping he would make me a copy so I did I don't think I, I don't know if I expected to get anything back or I was like waiting with bated breath, but a few weeks and five dollars later, I had it in my hand. I watched it, I laughed my ass off, and then I went ahead and tracked down on vinyl the record Megaforce by the band 707 because it had the theme song on it. I had to order that through an online order of a record shop in Harvard Square in Boston. I mean, I did some serious internet digging for that. Again, not going through eBay for it. And I think at that time I couldn't find it on eBay. I don't remember what I paid for it. I don't, if it was more than $20, no, it wasn't more than $20. It might've been 10 plus shipping or something. It was still probably overpriced, but whatever. Anyway, my friend Paul ripped that song for me uh, from the record to an MP3. And I've had the song, which you heard at the beginning of the show, on my computer since... God, this has got to be 2002. Honestly, don't know what happened to the record, by the way. I might have told Paul that he could uh, chuck it, or I may have got it may have gotten thrown away or donated in, in a move somewhere between 2002 and now. I mean, it was almost 20 years ago, so, you know, there you go. Now, for this podcast, I actually watched the movie, of course, but I watched the movie once all the way through and then partially the second time around. First, I dug out the old dub VHS copy that I'd gotten from the guy at Bad Movie Night, and I tossed it into the VCR in my basement, because I wanted to experience this film the first time that I did when I saw it in full, and, well, probably the same way a number of other people did. I mean, it wasn't one for one. I was watching this down in my basement on a 46-inch television, like a Samsung Smart TV, and not the Sony Trinitron that my parents had in their basement back in the mid-80s. But you pop it in and you look at it, and even though it's on a nicer screen, it still looks like a VHS copy, right down to the parts where the tracking went wonky for a few seconds in the middle of the movie, which, well, honestly, like, was kind of nice, like, comfort food 
It was like, it was really, it was their comfort food moment to have the tracking go wonky on a movie. Some of you are nodding your head and agreeing with me, and others of you are kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? I then rented it, because you can rent this from Amazon uh, for $2.99, and I watched it partially. I watched the opening, and then I skipped to like the last 20 or 30 minutes, and I'll explain why I did that later in my review. But I did want to see it in a better uh, copy on my even bigger television, which is in the living room. Uh, and that's not because I, ha- I loved it so much I had to watch it twice, but I was curious as to what it looked like in a more contemporary format. And if anything had been done to enhance like the quality of the picture, did they use a widescreen edition or anything like that? And whether or not any of that made a difference in the quality of the film in terms of the way it looked. I'll get to my feelings on that format difference later in the show. But right now, I'm going to take a break now that I've told my abbreviated version of my origin story, talked about why I've come back to this movie, and I'm going to go into the actual film, summarize it, review it, and come out deciding whether or not I gave it a fair shake last time and whether or not my experience with Megaforce has improved over nine years. So, stick around. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. From the director who brought you Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, Cannonball Run, comes the ultimate spectacle. Megaforce, an elite compact fighting unit armed with the most sophisticated weapons ever seen on a movie screen. The mission to preserve freedom and justice and battle the forces of evil. The good guys always win, even in the 80s. Megaforce. Megaforce was directed by Hal Needham who is most famous for directing two of the better-known Burt Reynolds hits of the 1970s and early 1980s, that is Smokey and the Bandit and The Cannonball Run. Needham himself was a well-known stuntman and stunt coordinator in Hollywood. Trek fans may know that he was the stunt double for uh, the Gary Mitchell character in the second pilot where No Man Has Gone Before. And uh, he did a lot of stunts during the heyday of like Western films and television in the 50s and 60s. And he turned to directing into the 70s and into the 80s. The producer of this film was Albert Ruddy. And this was meant to be a more straightforward movie than what Needham was famous for. Because Smokey and the Bandit and the Cannibal Run are comedies. um, Really kind of spoofy comedies in the case of the Cannibal Run. But Ruddy didn't want to produce too serious or gritty of a film. So he was trying to ride that line between crazy, silly cannonball run action and more serious stuff like you would see maybe a few years later with like Chuck Norris films or uh, what we would get into when we get into these action movies of the 80s like Delta Force with Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin comes to mind, although I think Delta Force came out after Megaforce. But that, from what I remember, takes a more serious, straightforward tone, whereas this is campy in places and silly in places, and it's on purpose, and, and apparently Ruddy wanted that. And he went and saw a production of Pirates of Penzance, and Barry Bostwick was starring in it. So he thought that Bostwick's abilities, seeing that, seeing him in that film, he's like, you know what, Bostwick can act campy. He'd be really good for this film. Bostwick had never had top billing in a film before. But he liked the idea for the role, 
And he, believe it or not, the, the look for Ace Hunter is um, of this Megaforce uniform, which well, he did not design, but it's, he had the, the hair, the beard, and the headband. Boswick had a beard at the time for, for one of the roles he was playing, and he decided to keep it. He said it made he made him look distinctive among the other characters. So he kind of contributed to that look. And he actually signed a three-picture deal with Ruddy that guaranteed that if this movie went and did well at the box office, that they were going to make two more. It didn't, but a sequel at one time was in the works before the, the movie was released, and it would have been called Deeds Not Words. It was eventually scrapped. This film, by all definitions, by the way, was a complete bomb. It was made on a $20 million budget. It grossed a total of about $5.6 million, according to Box Office Mojo. It was the 91st highest grossing movie of 1982. It made $200,000 less than The Last American Virgin. And it made only $2,000 more than the Mariel Hemingway movie Personal Best. It was nominated for three Golden Raspberry Awards, Worst Supporting Actor for Michael Beck, Worst Director for Needham, and Worst Picture. Uh, it didn't win any of those. The Worst Picture that year was Inchon, not a movie I'm particularly familiar with. So anyway, let's get to the actual film. And it was, at the time it was released, released by 20th Century Fox. Now, on the streaming edition on Amazon, there's a different company's logo, and the Fox logo with the Fox fanfare is not part of it. So either Fox sold the rights or let the rights lapse, and it ended up in the hands of a second-tier or third-tier distributor or studio or anything like that, which does happen to these films time from time to time. The producer's bought the rights back. So I didn't really do much research into the circumstances surrounding who owns Megaforce in terms of copyright is concerned. But we have the 20th Century Fox logo, at least on my VHS copy, and then we have a title card. And the title card reads, Despite official denials by leaders of the free world, sources now confirm the existence of Megaforce, a phantom army of super elite fighting men whose weapons are the most powerful science can devise. Their mission to preserve freedom and justice, battling the forces of tyranny and evil in every corner of the globe. We then open on a town that is in the country of Sardun. Tanks begin pouring in. They are from the neighboring hostile country of Gamibia and are led by Guerrera, who's played by Henry Silver, who's one of those Hey It's That Guy actors from the 70s and 80s, based on his IMDb profile. He's been in quite a few things. And we see from the start that he's not exactly as idealistic as the patriotic general he's working with. But after the general makes a bunch of speeches about, you know, country, patriotism, loyalty, ideals, blah, 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 he gives Guerrero go ahead to blow up a local factory and they take the citizens prisoner. At least it seems that way. Further into Sardun, Two members of their military are in search of the secret multinational strike team known as Megaforce. They are Gabriel Byrne White, who is played by Edward Mulher, who most 80s kids will recognize from his role as Devin Miles on Knight Rider. And Zara, who is a major. Gabriel Byrne White is a general. Zara is a major. She's also a, It's also hinted that she's the president's daughter. And she's played by Perseus Kambata, who is also known as, probably most famously known as Ilea from uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. And before you ask, she actually has hair in this movie, so there you go. Anyway, they're driven in by limousine into the middle of the desert, and they're just kind of left there. Then they're also almost attacked by a rattlesnake, but that snake is killed by Dallas, who's played by Michael Beck. He's also had a long career as a character actor on television and, and in movies, and he's also he was also, at least around this time, in Xanadu, as well as The Warriors. And Dallas introduces himself as a member of Megaforce, and then he shows them some of their cutting-edge holographic technology before meeting up with fellow Megaforce member Zack, played by Ralph Wilcox. And they take them further into the desert where the team is running a training exercise using souped-up and weaponized motorcycles called the Delta Mark IV. The leader of this squad and the leader of Megaforce as a whole is Ace Hunter, and he is played by our star, Barry Bostwick. Barry Bostwick is probably most famous for his role as Brad 
in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, as well as playing the mayor of New York City on the Michael J. Fox 90s sitcom Spin City. And he also hosted, uh, at least from what I remember, he hosted the PBS Capital 4th, 4th of July celebration on the National Mall for a few years uh, in the in the 2000s. He's good looking, he's charming, he definitely has some bravado. It's something that Zara is not going to tolerate. So there's a little bit of tension between the two. So they take Zara and Burn White into Megaforce headquarters. It's this huge facility that houses all of their various technology and armament and even their training facilities. Professor Eggstrom, who's played by George Firth, helps explain some of the more high-tech things on the tour and mentions that something he's been working on for Ace is now complete. We don't know what, but we will find out later in the movie. After being shown all of what Megaforce is and talking to Zara in her quarters where they kind of flirt with one another, but then she also talks about how she's a major in the military, she's a capable soldier, Hunter goes to the briefing room and explains who Guerrera is. Guerrera was once a friend of Hunter's. The two of them were classmates in the military academy. After their initial service, Guerrero returned to his home country, and while he was serving in the military, he was forced to surrender to opposition forces while the politicians of the country fled and deserted him. As a result, he decided to declare loyalty to no one, he's become a mercenary, and Gamibia is essentially paying him for his services, which is why at the beginning of the movie, when he was rolling eyes at all the patriotic and, and idealistic speeches that the general was giving, that totally makes sense. The idea is to get back at Guerrera and the Gamibians for their incursion into Sardun, and Hunter devises what's called Operation Hook, Line, and Sinker. It begins with Megaforce launching a surgical attack on Guerrera's forces, and they only have four minutes to do it, before retreating over the border back into Sardun. This will draw Guerrera out, and his forces will go over the border into Sardun, where Burn White and Zara's forces, a tank battalion of their own, will meet them in battle. Zara trains in the simulator. She does very well. Ace shows up and she expresses her interest in going along with the Megaforce team on its mission. He says he's not allowed to do that and she reluctantly agrees and she's going to stay behind with Burn White with the Sardinian forces. Now right before the mission, she gives him a goodbye kiss and they promise to meet up at some hotel in London for a date. The team does a stealth drop into Gamibia and the raid goes perfectly and in four minutes because there's actually a timer on the side of the screen as they make the strike, so we know it's going to be four minutes. And then they get out to the rendezvous point. They radio into Burn White and Zara that the mission was successful, and they sit and wait. The next morning, Guerrero shows up to congratulate his old friend Ace on his success with the strike. They talk about old times, and Guerrero chides Ace for remaining a patriot and idealist, something that worked in the 70s but won't work in the greed-forward 80s. Then Burn White and Zara show up to tell Ace that, unfortunately for Megaforce, Sardin's government has decided that furthering this conflict would result in an all-out war between the countries. Megaforce is there stranded in the desert because the Sardunians are not going to come and retrieve them, and they're still in Gamibian territory. So Guerrera kind of laughs at this and takes off and because he knows the only way out of Gamibia is by the dry lake, which is where he's positioned his forces. Hunter and Megaforce come up with a plan. The C-130 planes that brought them there will fly under Guerrera's radar and draw their fire long enough for the rest of Megaforce to sneak up on the tanks and then break through the lines, meeting the planes in the dry lake and then taking off for home. Things go well enough at first, but one of the planes gets damaged. That means while the other one can take them, the plane can only carry people, not equipment, which means they're all going to leave their vehicles behind, set them to self-destruct, and that'll be that. Megaforce attacks the tanks and everyone makes it through except Ace Hunter, who is knocked off his Delta Mark IV by some gunfire. He's okay. The bike's not completely damaged, but he only has about just about two minutes to get back to the plane before it takes off per his orders. And he manages to get up, but not before climbing onto Guerrero's tank and saying, I just wanted to say goodbye and remind you that the good guys always win, even in the 80s. He then drives like crazy across the dry lake to the waiting plane, which has already taken off. 
Pursuing the plane with Guerrero's forces behind him, Ace uses the controls that Egbert talked about during the tour of Megaforce HQ, and suddenly, rockets fire on the back of the Delta Mark IV, and Ace is flying through the air. The guys aboard the plane cheer him on, and he manages to get on board, and they all get away. Seeing that he's been bested, Guerrero can do nothing else but smile and give Ace a thumbs up, and when he heads back to the Sardin army camp, Ace fires a rocket and destroy Burn White's helicopter as kind of revenge for the way he left Megaforce stranded. The credits feature clips from the movie, and there's an after credit sequence that repeats the scene from earlier where Ace tells Guerrero that the good guys always win, even in the 80s. So that's your summary, and it's here where I have to admit that it was kind of hard to write an actual review of this movie, at least a critical one. There's a few reasons for that. It's not a particularly good movie. I mean, I knew this going in. I knew this going into the viewing. I probably would have known based on its reputation. But at the same time, I didn't want to be like a snarky prick who thinks he's creating his own episode of MST3K. Plus, there is a Rift Tracks edition available. So if you want to hear someone spend an hour and a half making fun of Megaforce, you can go watch the Rift Tracks streaming on Amazon as well. If we do just kind of take that objective critical standpoint you know that that like if i were a reviewer for the an actual reviewer for like a newspaper or something and if i had to kind of like work through why it really isn't that particularly of a good a good movie i will say that there's about one third of the film that's really engaging the other two films are so incredibly slow they're nearly unwatchable the beginning of the movie doesn't do much to establish our context, except that Megaforce was such a top-secret organization that it's only been recent that anyone has acknowledged its existence. It's multinational. And we see this, by the way, this is a nice little uniform detail. Each of the members of Megaforce wears a patch with their country's flag on it on their shoulder, which I thought was a cool little detail. They weren't necess- didn't necessarily have to do that. So we get something of a villain intro in the beginning as well. And uh, I guess at the time, this would have been reminiscent of, of news footage of Soviet tanks rolling into Afghanistan in 79, which is probably why they went for this. But to avoid sort of like weird political stuff of the day, they just came up with two fake countries that are in conflict with one another. Almost like how comic books do this all the time. That way it doesn't really date the comic to have something happen in like Zandia or Umek or instead of, you know, Iraq or or. Yugoslavia or something like that. So anyway, it's two fake countries that are in conflict with one another. But we don't get enough of what the conflict is to really get what's going on beyond the fact that Guerrera has tanks. And we know that, like, we know if, if you tease enough out, we know that they've gone over the border, they took the town, and it's it's part of a, just an ongoing conflict between them, a border crisis or something. But a little more of the of the background of the conflict might have probably worked, made it work a little bit better. And I think it's because from the moment Megaforce is introduced with the target practice display and then the introduction of Ace Hunter, all the way up until when Operation Hook, Line, and Sinker begins with the nighttime raid, there's really little to no action in the movie and it's just it's basically like there's a lot of introduction of toys there's an explanation of what's going to happen later in the film it's like someone writing the movie thought that people are so impressed by the cue scenes in james bond films and by the briefing before the death star trench run and star wars that they decided that an entire hour of that would be great to do on film and i'm not kidding either we go from section to section of headquarters with ace and Eggstrom explaining what like one of the vehicle's toys essentially is, or somebody giving us verbal background about something or someone. You know, Needham used this new effect called IntroVision, which basically means like it takes us beyond bad blue screen effects and essentially allows actors to walk into a photograph or matte painting in a way that looks realistic, as opposed to having to build a complete set. And I'll give him that. There's a few times where you can see the strings, metaphorically speaking, but the intervision really does work well. So I, I would imagine that this got improved over the years so that we can have entire sets that are mostly artificial. I mean, we've seen it with, say, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and 
and the Star Wars movies and things where there are a lot of sets that are just not created. They're just mostly partial sets that were filled in with computers later. But otherwise, this entire middle section of the movie is interminable. And I'd say the banter and flirting between Ace and Zara helps make the long middle section a little more bearable, but I think they're going for like a Han and Leia thing between these two, and while Barry Bostwick can kind of pull off an off-brand Han Solo, Persis Kambata is not the right actress to play Leia. She's not terrible. She's not a bad actress. Actually, she's a good actress. But like, if you think of Carrie Fisher in, in Star Wars, especially in The Empire Strikes Back, which came out two years before this, because Jedi didn't come out until 83, that sharp, whip-smart attitude that Carrie Fisher brings to Princess Leia is not Persis Kambata's strength. Granted, they, they didn't really do much for her. They they put her in a couple of dresses. The set designer thought that pumping 1970s mall music into her room in Megaforce HQ was a good idea. And like prior to this, the only thing I had to go by of her was her in Star Trek The Motion Picture walking around and saying carbon units and V'ger over and over and over. And, she, and in here, she didn't really show that she had like the kind of that kind of quickness in, in her acting style. She could she did show some strength and, and the fact that they had her like be really smart and good at what she was doing was a, a really, really good idea. And I'm honestly disappointed that she didn't get to come along on the mission because that would have been a cool cool way to work her more into the plot. You know, if you're not gonna have her like verbally spar, if the verbal sparring with with Ace Hunter is not gonna work, then have her become like you know another member of Megaforce by the end. You know, we in fact we would see that in cartoons and movies in the 70s and 80s. There was at least one female character in a number of the shows that we watched that was a badass. You know, think of Scarlet and CoverGirl and Lady J, all from G.I. Joe. Think of Chitara from the Thundercats or Princess Alora from Voltron. Tila from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and Princess Leia, who was kind of the template for that because of the late, because of the popularity of Star Wars in the late 70s. Like, that's what they should have done with Zara, and uh, it would have been really cool, but... She passes, and she passes the audition, but Ace is like, well, I can't really take you on the mission. She's like, all right. Like, really? So that's like a big flaw in the movie from there. Like, a little more for the for the female lead or the main female supporting character to do would have been really cool, especially since it's in line with a lot of tropes of kid-oriented action-adventure sci-fi entertainment from the 70s and 80s. I will say, though, that... <laughs> There is a scene in where two of them are talking in the simulator room, and it's not that they don't have a chemistry. It's just that it's just that she's not suited for I think what they might have been thinking they were drawing from from Princess Leia. But the scene where the two of them are talking in the simulator room uh, after she says, "You know, I, I got a perfect score on the simulator. Why don't you let me draw Megaforce?" Well, it's all shot in shadow, and and Bostwick. This actually cracked me up. Boswick has his right hand position, so it kind of looks like his genitalia is hanging out of his pants. And according to the IMDb movie page, Boswick did this on purpose to get back at Hal and Needham because Needham had gotten him involved in a Ponzi scheme and he'd lost money on it. I honestly wouldn't have been uh, looking for it had I not read the trivia page already for IMDb, so I thought that was pretty funny. And I actually was laughing out loud when I did see it because I hadn't noticed the first time I watched it. But other than that, again, there's so many different ways to do that middle section, build character, you know, develop them, maybe show off some more uh, of the toys and the action by having Zara like train on the actual thing and having her do a training run. You know, it, it would have been really, really cool to do that um, instead of having just basically a lot of people talking and telling us what's going to happen and what they can do. But I do want to segue now into what's entertaining and even really good about the film. Because I've been sitting here criticizing it for the last few minutes. And while those criticisms are valid, I didn't set out to spend my 100th episode just being mean about a movie. Plus, 
I've watched this more than one time. This isn't like, you know, I was going to pick a movie to tear apart and it happened to be Megaforce. Like, I've seen this movie. I've seen these scenes from this movie multiple times. If I think it was complete crack and just want to make fun of it, why would I cover it, right? Well, there are three action set pieces that really stand out and really are the reasons that I've come back to Megaforce over the years. Although I will admit that my rewatches of the film have really been more or less those particular scenes. I think I've only really watched this movie through all the way two or three times. And it makes sense that the action pieces are so good because Hal Needham, again, was a stunt guy. And the highlights of his well-known films, you know, are A, Burt Reynolds, and B, stunt work. You know what I mean? So, so you know, he's the one who, um, I remember reading, it was either Details or Men's Health years ago, where they interviewed him on how to do one of those really cool, like, 180 turnarounds in your car like what speed to get up to and how to actually execute the turn so that you don't flip the car over you know that like so that that's that's how neat him so that's why we have these 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 action set pieces and um, i first thought that the introduction to ace hunter when we see him during the target practice scene looked like a theme park stunt show because you know it's basically a montage with music and there's targets going up and these guys are lifting the bikes and they're firing the rockets and doing tricks and everything. And I'm, and I seriously look at this, this is like a stunt show. I'd see at a theme park, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, but then all of a sudden like Barry Bostwick, Hunter takes off the helmet and Barry Bostwick's there and Bostwick has, he, he has like the George Michael and wham hair with a full beard and then a blue headband. It is really eighties. But it works because, you know, even like from the moment he shows up, you see the expression on his face. You're like, oh, he was showing off for Zara and Burn White. So it was a stunt show. And by the way, I have to give Barry Bostwick as much credit as I possibly can for the film. He's really charming. He does lean into the overall campiness of the role, which is what the producer was looking for. And he, he's he's doing, like I said, it was kind of a Han Solo thing. He's not aping Harrison Ford so much as he decides to play like a Han, like kind of the, the brash Han Solo type of character. But as if Han wasn't a scoundrel, but was actually James T. Kirk. Like, he's the quarterback of the football team. Han Solo would have never been the quarterback of the football team. And Boswick imbues him with that sort of bravado and likable bravado that you get from Ford in Star Wars, but less of kind of the 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 seedy dickish part of it and stuff like that. It shouldn't work. It should feel like a watered-down Han. But it does. And I think it's Bostwick who gives it who gives it that. And, you know, there's the first, like, five, ten minutes of the movie. It's kind of a good start to things. And if Needham had had a bigger budget, or maybe a better editor, maybe he would have been able to integrate some action scenes, flashback scenes, or something into the middle portion of that movie. Because it's such a long section of the film. But you cannot do a theme park stunt show through an entire film if you don't have a big enough budget. Because when you have a big enough budget, you can do the theme park stunt show through several parts of the middle of the film. And we call that Top Gun. But then again, Top Gun works because we're watching fighter jets. And those lend themselves to theme park stunt show set piece type of things. Because fighter jets are fast, they're dynamic... And a battle between fighter jets and a dogfight makes for a really, really fast-paced climax. Motorcycles, they're pretty awesome. And motorcycle motorcycle fights would make some fast-paced action if they were being used in the right context. But Megaforce basically takes place in like one square mile of Nevada desert somewhere. So we don't get cool chase scenes through cities we don't get anything you know anything where there's like you know close turns to make or or roads or highways or anything we have motorcycles and dune buggies fighting tanks now using tanks in this setting does make sense 
I'm no military expert, but when you're fighting a land war in a desert, tanks are probably a good choice because of their size and their power. They're also naturally slow moving, which for the sake of this movie doesn't make for some fast paced action. It means a slow moving bulky vehicle. Using motorcycles and other fast moving vehicles against them, it ratchets up things a little bit because you know, you've got that snow speeder versus the AT-AT type of confrontation from the Empire Strikes Back. But Needham has to work a little bit to make the battles in the last half of the film plausible, even if he isn't going to have like evil Megaforce fight off against good Megaforce. That would have been a cool idea for a sequel, by the way. Because, like, you know, they captured somebody captured one of the bikes before Blue or something like that. It was damaged and never blew up, and they reverse engineered it, and all of a sudden we have Dark Megaforce versus Good Megaforce, and it's like Clash of the Megaforce Titans and. That would have been a really cool movie. <laughs> it's like a sequel or, or the third one or something. But we never got it. Anyway, so back to the movie. Um, Needham, Needham has to work for this. He has to come up with a way for this motorcycle versus tank battle to feel tense, to feel realistic on some level, and to really pull the rest of the movie along. He almost pulls it off because that last half hour is generally entertaining. And it's rewatchable. It's not perfect. And I'll get to why not in a minute. But I have to give him credit there. And the first part of Operation Hook, Line, and Sinker is flat out the best part of the movie. So as I mentioned in the summary, the first part of Operation Hook, Line, and Sinker that Megaforce does, Ace Hunter literally calls it a surgical strike. He says, we're going to strike at night. The idea is to hit them, to tick them off. They'll go back over the border. Your tanks, your tanks will then counter, and you'll blow them off the map. Now, early in the film, during the show us your toys scenes, we saw that all the Megaforce vehicles have like the special color changing paint, which means that they can change color based on like for a camouflage effect. So normally they're white with like brown and, and orange stripes and lightning bolts and things like that. It's a very 70s, 80s color palette. It looks like the type of thing you'd see in a bowling alley in 1979. But if they need to go stealth at night, they can just like, you know, basically because of the way the paint and the, and the, and the material works, it can just go black without having to paint in black. So that's what they do. They come in colored black, they hit what they have to do, and they have to, and they get out in four minutes. And I know it's really cheesy to have an actual timer running in the corner of the screen just to show us that the raid is taking four minutes, but I liked that. Furthermore, this strike mission goes off without a hitch. Needham, to his credit, totally avoids the action movie trope of someone betraying the team, someone getting captured during the initial strike, something going wrong because there's like a bigger threat out there that's preventing them, or uh, they were like in Predator, they're misled. They 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 do the surgical strike and they're but they're completely they were completely misled because it's it's more like they're uh, you know they're they're doing CIA dirty work and there's nothing goes wrong. They hit what they're supposed to hit. They get out. They're an elite fighting force, and they're allowed to show that instead of, you know, screwing up somewhere. And as convenient to the plot as it is for Burn White, and, and I got to be honest with you, like every time I was writing his name in my synopsis and in my review, I kept having to remember that it was Burn White and Devin because throughout my taking my notes of the movie, I just kept writing Devin because it's what I know him for. Anyway, as convenient to the plot as it is for him to call off the dogs... You know, say, hey, you know, we're not going to give you the tank backup that you thought and you're stranded in Namibia now. It's actually a pretty realistic twist. I mean, if you think about it, think about the politics of the situation. You have a border skirmishes between these two countries that go on and there are little things here and or little incursions, this and that. And at the beginning of the movie, Namibia did one into Sardun and then this is the getting them back for that. And maybe Namibia is like, all right, we're even. But if you do anything else at this point, we're going to call it an act of war. Not only that, Guerrera knows that Megaforce is still behind the border. They're not that they're not off to safety, so they're playing uh, they're playing their cards right. You know, it's either you, you we're gonna we're gonna knock out Megaforce or we're gonna make life horrible for Megaforce because they're behind enemy lines, and their allies can't come in or get them, or else we're gonna go full scare war. It's it's a pretty 
well-devised plot device. Of course, with our heroes stranded in the desert, we get this scene with Guerrera going to see Ace. And they're, like, really friendly. Granted, the way the scene is structured is that Guerrera is just there to be a dick because he knows what's going to happen. And then Burn White and Zara land and they tell Ace what's really going on, you know, how they can't they, they can't come and get them out of there. And uh, Guerrero's just basically there to see the look on Ace's face when they when they tell him that because he knows that Ace is screwed. But they, they like, really, through the movie, they act like just legitimate old friends and not old friends who are, like, now bitter rivals. This isn't Kirk and Khan or Matrix and Bennett from Commando. It's more like... It's more like they play for rival professional sports teams, but in the offseason, when they're not on the field together, they're, like, they're drinking buddies. And, again, it, it oddly works for a movie that is supposed to be kind of silly at points and campy, but there's not enough of it in the earlier part of the movie because the way that Ace talks about Guerrera, you think it's going to be, like, a bitter conflict when they finally meet face to face but it's like hey how you doing old buddy and, and the actors pull it off but it's just like you know i was kind of like where did this come from right so we get that we get the problem they're between a rock and a hard place and we get this climactic battle and let's talk about this climactic battle motorcycles and dune buggies against tanks with hal needham himself playing a guy called i think he's credited as the technician who's He's sitting in like one of the bigger Megaforce vehicles, surrounded by like a big 80s sci-fi movie computer. Lots of lights and things like that and fader boards and stuff like that. And he's literally directing Megaforce. He's the one who's kind of sent calm. They're, you know, he's filtering things through them. He's telling them where to go and what to do. He's pressing buttons and things are happening. Hal Needham with the hair and the glasses looks like Dan Reeves. He was the coach of the Denver Broncos, the New York Giants, the Atlanta Falcons at one point or another. And uh, like Hal Needham really does look like he should be coaching a team or something. But, you know, he's the director. <laughs> anyway, the plan makes sense. The idea is that they're going to use these huge planes to provide cover. So they draw fire. Now they fly them under the radar. And they actually show them like flying really, really low to the ground. Again, it's like somebody did their research here. And I believe they did consult with the Pentagon or did consult with the military. The tanks used in the movie were from like the Nevada National Guard. So there was some technical assistance and actual research or due diligence done for some of the military stuff in the movie, which I can appreciate because a plane that big is going to get spotted either on radar or visually, and they fly it low enough so that they're not spotted until they're too close for them to react quickly enough. So again, you're taking advantage of the bulk and the slowness of these tanks, and they provide that cover so that the motorcycles and all the smaller vehicles, because there's like 60 guys in Megaforce, can get as close as they can to the line of tanks, the barricade, so they have a better shot of breaking through. Again, it's a pretty logical, realistic idea. And the other thing is, is that they're trying to like minimize enemy casualties as much as possible because the whole possible war thing. It is a PG movie. There's not a lot of death in the movie, to be completely honest with you. So... Um, so there's that too. It was aimed at a younger audience. But I did enjoy like how they worked this stuff in. And then there's that contrivance of the one plane taking on too much damage during the part where they're p providing cover. It's not destroyed, but they have to bug out because they got to get back. They're not going to be able to carry all these people. So what happens is that they all have to leave their vehicles behind. So that when Ace is left behind, because Ace basically gets knocked down and he gets back up again because the motorcycle crashes, but it's not completely destroyed. And if they had the vehicles on board the C-130, one of them could drive themselves out, rescue him, pick him up, and come back. But now they're running the risk of they're all on foot. The vehicles are there. They're going to get destroyed. And all Ace has is his motorcycle. So it adds to that tension that they need. But a lot of that sequence really is theme park stunt show. We get a lot of toy commercial glory shots. And Mattel honestly is credited for some of this. I think they're actually credited as the fashion designer, if not officially but unofficially, because they designed the Megaforce uniforms because they were, and I'll talk about this later, they were working on a toy line. But anyway, everything is really staged. Now, tanks don't have the best mobility. 
you know they're going to set up a blockade they're not going to move very much you know you you got they're going to swivel around and fire maybe move in one direction or another dog fighting fire uh, fighters you know it's not it's not tie fighters and x-wings it's not f-14s and migs it's tanks so my question of course was just to be a little critical of that if Guerrero knew what he was up against why not get some lighter vehicles or air power out there i mean Inside the story, maybe he didn't have that capability. Maybe he wasn't given it. Maybe he was just too arrogant to think it would work. Because honestly, getting a fighter or a chopper there with a machine gun to take out as many as they could and then take them out as they're moving on would be a really, really smart thing. I'm going to chalk it up to hubris, and I'm going to chalk it up to a lack of resources on the part of the Gamibian army. Anyway, of course, outside of the inside of the story, if we had all these motorcycles and dune buggies getting shot down and shot to pieces prior to hitting the tanks and then after hitting the tanks we wouldn't have as many cool shots of motorcycles jumping and their drivers throwing grenades down into the tanks as they jump over them and we wouldn't have the big mega force moment where after they get through the tanks Needham, like Needham literally, the technician, hits a button on his computer and all the bikes suddenly have multicolored smoke coming out of them to provide cover like he literally is turned to the audience and he's basically like, watch this, kids. And there are wide shots of these vehicles in the sand and smoke behind them, like, you know, red, white, blue, yellow. It's like something out of like an air show flyover. Or like when this in the SeaWorld water ski show where all the they all get on the pyramid, they're all holding like big flags and stuff in part of the grand finale or things like that. I mean it's just, it really is like, here's the spectacular kids. Do, 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 do. But then it's not even the end because then we get Ace's big moment. And this is where he gets the bike to fly. This is something that was seeded earlier in the thing where, where Eggstrom was like, you got to hit one and then you hit two. Give him the old one, two. So it's a cool idea. You know, you got a flying motorcycle. Who wouldn't want a flying motorcycle, right? And this is the one moment in the entire movie I love because it's terrible. I mean, I, I can't, like, the idea behind it is cool. That, like, here's this experimental thing. We didn't know what it was going to do. But here's the experimental thing. Use the big thing right at the moment when you absolutely need to. Kind of like in The Last Starfighter where he he hits the the death blossom, I think it's called. And it's basically, like, the thing spins around and fires all the weapons at once and eliminates everything. You know, like, it's your big power move. So he does it. And it's a cool concept, and he and he races toward the plane. But and I, and I know there are genuine fans of this film, but the blue screening behind Barry Bostwick as he's on this motorcycle, both in profile when he takes off and when he's flying through the air, is really badly done. And instead of doing all these different sorts of cuts and different types of shots to minimize how obvious the blue screening is, which is something Spielberg does in E.T., because there are scenes in the bike flying moments in E.T., if you watch the Blu-ray, that you can tell, you can see the blue screen. But it's 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 brief scenes, and then you go back to other shots and things, and it's integrated really well that you ignore that you could see the blue screen. Here, we just cut back and forth between two shots. Ace on the flying bike, and the Mega Force guys who are standing in the open rear of the C-130, and that's flying slowly enough so that Ace can fly fast and catch up and then fly into the back of it and, and be safe. Which I'm pretty sure is an SAT question, by the way. If Ace Hunter is flying at 40 miles an hour and the Mega Force C-130 is flying at 35 miles an hour and they are 10 miles apart when they both take off, how long will it take Ace to get to the plane? Making things worse in this scene is the acting of the guys in Mega Force. Not Bostwick, but... The other guys, they're all just standing there like, come on, come on, man. Come on, you can do it, man. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I can't even, it's, it's obvious that they're standing on a set looking at something off screen and then they cut to Ace and it's just, it's this, this weird like juxtaposition of the two types of shots. It just doesn't, it's not seamlessly edited. And like, you could just totally tell, you could see the strings, so to speak. And it's not like, you can't do that well. Like, look at the train dodge scene from Stand By Me, where they're, like, hoping that Gordy and Vern make it past the train. And there's a shot or two where you can kind of see where they were manipulating the the train a little bit. You see a little bit of the blue screen effect, but it's done, again, the editing is done so deftly 
that you don't mind it. It works. Here, it's just, it's so blatantly bad. And it's like, the side, the, the guys in the scene, they're just so extra. It's like, I know Hal told you to be all concerned because it's dangerous and it's a dangerous rendezvous, but there's a difference between worrying about your friend and struggling to pass a bowel movement. At least Bostwick commits to it the whole way through, though. And when Ace figures out how to fly the thing, he does this 360 it's like, woohoo! And then, then he lands on the plane. The look on his face is, this is so freaking ridiculous, and I absolutely love it. And he's having so much fun, and it honestly made me smile, because as terrible as that scene is, I still love it. It's because when you get an actor or a group of actors who can lean into the ridiculous of a movie's premise, or at least not try to think they're above the material, because the material's supposed to be fun... And they're like, you know what? This is supposed to be a fun movie. Let's have fun with this movie. You get honest moments like this. And before I wrap up this segment, I also have to say the same thing about Henry Silva as uh, Guerrera, which is another performance that leans into that campiness and ridiculousness in a great way. Because he just swaggers onto the set, and it's kind of like as if Wayne Newton or George Hamilton were the main villain. Like, he's... Oh, he's got a he's got his hat on. At one point, he's got a cowboy hat on. He's smoking cigars. You know, there's this whole thing between him and Ace about a lighter with a Megaforce logo on, and he stole Ace's Megaforce lighter at one point. It, and it shouldn't work. It should be just this is ridiculous. But again, because he plays off Bostwick so well, and they're just kind of you can tell they're kind of having fun here. It works, and that's why it works. So like I said, the movie is available for uh, streaming on Amazon. It's about $2.99 for a rental, so it's about what you would have paid back in Blockbuster back in the day. The Riff Tracks version is also there. I didn't watch it. I don't know if it's any good. The streaming version on Amazon is a standard definition format, so it actually is just slightly better and a little clearer than, say, my VHS copy. I don't think that uh, a remaster for a better format would improve anything, but it would be interesting to see what a cleaned-up version of the film might look like. I would rent it, and I would watch it all the way through if you've never seen it all the way through. And if you have, I would just watch the last 20 minutes, 20 or 30 minutes. I would watch the action sequences and kind of fast-forward your way through the, uh, the the slower scenes in the movie. Because it it's not Star Wars, but, you know... <sighs> It was a little nostalgic. I mean, like, you know, I, I on TV and then going to theme parks over the years from when I was a kid, I've seen stunt spectacular shows. I've seen the water skiing shows. It made me think of that sort of stuff. And then it also made me think of, like, how I used to play Hot Wheels, you know? To Needham's credit, like, if I had a bunch of the Megaforce Hot Wheels and some tanks and maybe some action figures, like... I could replay this on the floor of my parents' finished basement. I mean, like, it's really like, you know, here we're running here and we're through here and you know, it's just it's 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 it is a kid playing with his toys and and that's where I think he did succeed, even if the movie itself did fail. So I'm going to take another break here. Uh, when I get back, I'm going to wrap things up by talking a little bit about some of the memorabilia for the film, and I'm going to make my final points. So stick around. Well, hey there, this is Huckleberry Ham. And when I'm not busy making movies or TV shows, I enjoy listening to my favorite internet radio show, Two True Freaks. They got all sorts of shows for y'all to listen to, covering all sorts of geeky topics. Star Trek, Star Wars, cartoons, scary movies, folks eating supper, music, giant monsters, and one feller who buys stuff at garage sales. And the funny books. My word, the funny books. Old funny books. New funny books. Scary funny books. Movies about funny books. Funny books about movies. British fellers talking about funny books. And lots more. So why don't you check these fellers out and head on over to twotruefreaks.com and tell them Huckleberry sent you. Two True Freaks, chock full of great podcasts since 2008. Sounds great, Mr. Hound. Thanks for coming in today.
Oh, no problem, fellers. Now, if y'all excuse me, I have to run. I'm shooting a movie. It's a western, and if y'all see Quick Draw McGraw, don't tell him. He's still hot at me about the good, the bad, and Huckleberry Hound. And once he gets all El Cabong, he's a pain in the you-know-where. And then there was this one time that he and Baba Louie had a little too much sarsaparilla, and Quickdraw said something to McGilla Gorilla that I won't repeat, you understand? We were shooting Yogi's gang, and things got mighty tense. Boo-Boo, and, and Boo-Boo's a great feller, real sharp, love working with him. Boo-Boo kept it all from Yogi, you understand? But boy, I tell you, TwoTrueFreaks.com. Tell them Huckleberry the sent you. Now, had Megaforce been a huge hit, I'm sure there would have been some serious merchandising to go along with it. But it seems like Mattel uh, only really put out a little bit, even though they were kind of ready for it. Like I said, they designed the costumes of the Megaforce crew. But they did re they released some Hot Wheels sets and vehicles, some of which actually go for a decent amount on eBay if you have it new in box. They also released a Megaforce set for their Vertibird line of toy helicopters. There was a fan club, or at least a Megaforce membership kit, that was advertised in comics back in 1982. And if you sent a dollar plus the Sazy to an address in Culver City, California, you would get the official Megaforce patch, a Megaforce membership card, and a bike decal. The only other ancillary product I could find associated with the film was a soundtrack released in 2011, which had some of the had the theme music and some of the uh, some of the other stuff. I think uh, people had put money to put it together or, or what. The band 707 sang the movie's theme, and they did release, as I said, a, they did release it on an album. It was called Megaforce. It came out in 1982. The single was co-written by Jonathan Kane of the band Journey. And knowing that, I could hear a little bit of Journey's 1986 hit Be Good to Yourself in Megaforce, the song by 707. Fraley's Comet, the uh, Ace Frehley uh, solo band, Ace Frehley of Kiss, also reworked the song, I think in the late 80s, and I believe they released it as Calling to You. So it had a little bit of a, of, of a life. Uh, Megaforce, the original song, it was a minor hit for 707. It hit number 12 on the mainstream rock charts in 1982, and it peaked at number 62 in the Billboard Hot 100 the same year. That's not at all bad for a movie that completely bombed at the box office when it was released. And what's more is that this film has a pretty loyal following. There's a website I'll link to in the show notes called Megaforce HQ. It's at megaforcehq.com, and there is an associated Facebook group where people post pictures of stuff from the movie. Uh, this is merchandise. This is toys that they own. And there are some people who have either brought, bought props that survived the end of production back in the 1980s, I don't see. I don't know how prop collecting works. I don't know if it's one of those things where somebody bought the prop outright back in '82 and then it just kind of circulated among collectors for years and years and years, and people who wanted to preserve them, or if they were restored or what. Um, and I know that there are some people. At least one of the guys who runs helps run the Megaforce HQ is like either restoring or building one of those uh, the the motorcycles and then the dune buggy things. And I don't remember what the dune buggy things were called. Uh, because he he posts updates about like you know I got this part I got this part and this so it, it it's it's a pretty fascinating group into a into a fandom for what's become like a cult film and that's one of the reasons I actually decide to take a more serious look at the movie or at least be try to be a little more fair I mean I could really have torn this movie a new one and I would have had a great time doing it but. What purpose would that serve except maybe making me think I look like the most hilarious jackass on the internet? I'm sure that sounds like I'm getting soft in my old age or something, but I don't know. There's a difference between appreciating something for either how insane it is or how bad it is, and then liking it ironically. I feel like the former is more genuine. The latter is like hipster ego boosting. I don't watch this movie very often, but I genuinely enjoy getting out of it what I can when I want to. And props and credit for those who genuinely love it. And that's episode 100. Episode 101 is going to be a big one uh, because what I'm going to do is take the time to go through a lot of stuff. This is outtakes from previous episodes. 
feedback from both blog posts and podcast episodes that I've been holding on to for a while. And I'm actually going to go further into the history and backstory of the blog and podcast. It's literally going to be Pop Culture Affidavit 101. Until then, leave a review on iTunes if you if you haven't. Uh, feel free to send me an email. Follow me on Twitter. Find me on Facebook. I love the fact that people listen to this and make comments. It really, really is great. And I appreciate everything that uh, TTF and all the listeners of the show have done for me over the years. And I'm really looking forward to the next 100, 200, however many episodes I end up doing. So as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. I just wanted to say goodbye and remind you that the good guys always win, even in the 80s.